Well, listen, today we're going to jump back into our series on secret agents of change. Today we're going to be talking about Mary Magdalene who was delivered in order to deliver. Amen? Amen. But let me, let me start with this. Years ago, many years ago, I remember being at a denominational meeting, not the PCA, another denomination. I was at the meeting, and a young man was uh, going through his theological examinations before the, their equivalent of the presbytery in order to be uh, ordained. And this young man had recently graduated from seminary and... Uh, he was answering all these different theological questions, these Bible questions, these church history questions. And I was like, this dude, he's pretty sharp. He knows his stuff. He was doing a great job. But then it happened. Out of nowhere, a pastor asks him about his own personal experience with the Lord. And this young man who had finished up his college studies and his seminary studies and was getting ready to be ordained in a pastoral ministry, he looked like a deer in the headlights. What do you mean my personal experience with the Lord? Ask me about, you know, Christus Victor. Ask me about church history in the Middle Ages. Ask me about all those things, but you're asking me about my personal history? I I don't know exactly what you're getting at. So, you know, the, 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 the questioner, the pastor, is, is saying, okay, well, maybe, like, some of you in here have these crazy salvation stories because you came out of all kind of crazy stuff, uh, but others of you don't have a story like that. You were raised in a Christian home. You never went too far off the path, although you know you were a mess, right? You were a sinner. You were a mess. We all were that, but so the pastor's trying to help him out and say, well, it doesn't have to be some crazy conversion ex, uh, experience or anything like that. But tell me, is there a time when you saw a change in your actions or in your affections, the things that you loved as a result of Jesus? And again, this young man has no answer. I'm thinking his face right now, it looks like if I was on Jeopardy with Ken Jennings. Y'all know Ken Jennings? And he says... Uh, Ancient Russian art for a thousand, Alex. I mean, my face would be like, I don't know what ancient Russian art is. But this man's face was like that. It was like something he had no conception of. One of the saddest things I've ever seen. Uh, I don't remember what happened next after that. But I'll never forget the, the, the sense of how sad it was that this young man had all these academic credentials. He had all this knowledge. But he seemed to have no real experiential knowledge of God. He answered all these deep questions about uh, theology, but when it came to asking about God's calling him to repent from his sin, to reconcile relationships, or to rest in Christ alone for himself, he had no answer. And he's about to become a pastor. Scary moment. Today, we're going to look at someone whose experience is very, very different than that. Uh, Mary Magdalene, a remarkable woman whose life was touched by Jesus Christ and it was changed forever. Today's main point 
is simply this. Agents of change are people who have been unmistakably touched by God. Amen? Unmistakably touched by the living God. Let's stand together and we're going to read the scripture. We'll, we'll be looking at a few different scriptures today, but we'll read together from the Gospel of Luke. This is the first time that Mary Magdalene is introduced in the Bible to us. And so let's look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is from the NIV. It's up on the board. So you know what we do. Let's read this together in the presence of the Lord. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Let me pray. Father, in the coming few moments, we pray that you would touch us, that, Lord, we would hear from you, and, Lord God, that you would do the work in the heart of each person in this place that you desire to do. Have your way. Glorify your name. Be with us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Mary Magdalene, this amazing woman of God that we're going to look at today. Uh, You can go to the next slide, but there's two main characteristics that we're going to look at today. But before I get in them, let me just say a couple things about Mary, because I'll even bet that most people in this room here today have misconceptions about Mary Magdalene. There's all these stories about her and what she did and what her lifestyle was and what happened after the resurrection. There's some fanciful and crazy stuff. But even people who love the Bible, who study the Bible, who are into the Bible, often have misconceptions about Mary. Um, I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands right now, but I remember one of my favorite gospel songs from the, the 90s was, C.C. Winans, and she was singing about the alabaster box. How many people know about the alabaster box? Amen. And, and she's talking about, he, uh, singing about Mary's alabaster box. Amen. There's this beautiful scene in, in uh, Luke chapter 7 where uh, this sinful woman, the Bible says, uh, wets Jesus' uh, 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 feet with her hair and, and uh, with, with her tears and wipes them with her hair, and then she has this alabaster box and this pure nard that's poured out on his feet, and this beautiful story, and most people uh, just think that this is Mary Magdalene, that she came from a life of prostitution, but the Bible never, ever equates her with that woman, Uh, and, and there's nothing in the corpus of the Bible that would tell us that Mary was a prostitute. We'll see what her issue is here in a minute. But that did not seem to be her issue. It wasn't until about 581 when Pope Gregory gave a sermon where he put Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman in Luke chapter uh, 7, and, 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 and Mary of Bethany together into one person where this began to be the thinking of the church. 
And it wasn't until 1969 that the official teaching of the Catholic Church even changed on that. So, but we know from the Bible uh, that these are not the same people. And, and so we have all these misconceptions about Mary, but we want to talk about this woman that we see in the scripture. So the first thing I want you to see, what it means to be an agent of change from Mary's life, is that agents of change are people with a radical devotion to God. And we will see that in Mary's life, and we'll ask ourselves, where, where do I look on that from Luke chapter 8? And then secondly, not only are they, do they have radical devotion to God, but agents of change, and number two, are courageous witnesses of the risen Lord. And we'll see that again with this remarkable woman, Mary Magdalene. So let's jump into the first point here. Agents of change are people with a radical devotion to God. Agents of change are people with a radical devotion to God. So we, we see this about Mary Magdalene in, in the scripture here in verse 2 of Luke 8. It says, Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. So Mary is one of these women that is following Jesus, but it specifically tells us about her story. Mary had been demon-possessed, and she wasn't possessed by one demon or two demons or three demons, but the Bible says she was possessed by seven demons. Now, I know i got some Bible scholars in this room, so you know when the Bible talks about seven, it's talking about this idea of completion or this idea of fulfillment, this idea that whatever seven is attached to is full whatever seven is attached to is complete it is the whole nine yards or the whole seven yards i guess i should say so the bible tells us that mary magdalene it has seven demons that have been cast out of her here's what's going on with mary this is what i believe most people would have considered mary's life to be basically a lost cause she has seven demons she is full of demonic oppression, possession, whatever words you want to put to it, this girl is jacked up for real. This is Mary Magdalene. We see throughout the Gospels accounts of those who are uh, demon-possessed. In Mark chapter 5, we learn about a man, and we see this in the other Gospels as well, who has what the Bible calls a legion of demons. He, Jesus asked this man, uh, what are you called? And he says, Legion. Legion was in, in uh, the Roman army. It was a, a, a troop of about a thousand men. So when this person answers, what is your name? And these demonic answer comes, Legion. This man is full of demonic forces. And what does he do? The Bible says that he goes about, he has basically no contact with people when they try to tie him up or bind him, he breaks the binds. He runs around and goes around with no clothes on. He's, he's naked and he's cutting himself. And you have this incredibly ugly picture of this man who has been possessed by the enemy. You see another picture in Mark chapter 9 where this father presents his little boy before Jesus. And it's a, a boy who is demon-possessed as well. And uh, Jesus asked him, so how does that manifest itself? And 
he says, well, this is what happens. The demon throws him into the fire or into the water in order to destroy him. So we see these ugly pictures of what this looks like. And here is this woman, Mary Magdalene, who is uh, one who has seven demons, but something happened along the way. Amen. Something happened to make a difference at some point. We don't know when, but Jesus crossed her path at some point. We don't know when she was completely delivered from the oppression of demonic spirits. At some point, we don't know exactly when Mary came into the fullness of her right mind because she was touched by the Savior. And that touch, the touch of Jesus, changed her life forever. Beloved, when you experience the touch of God, you will know it. You will know it. If Jesus' touch, change, Jesus touch changes everything, Jesus' touch gives life, Jesus' touch gives hope, Jesus' touch gives freedom, and Jesus' touch gives direction for life. We see another instance in Matthew 9 and in Mark 5 and Luke 8 of a woman who had an issue of blood coming out of her body for 12 long years. And the Bible says she suffered much at the hands of the physicians. She paid all her money. She lost everything that she had. She paid it all out. And the Bible says she only got worse. But this woman was desperate. She heard that Jesus is coming to town. And this woman says, I have to touch just the hem of his garment. And when she does, she is immediately healed. It is that touch of the living God that changes everything. This woman was desperate for that touch. This week I was talking to a friend about his experience of traveling internationally for the first time. He was out of the country for a few months, and he talked about how uh, it, it, it just changed his life. His world got bigger. Things seemed different. Has anyone ever had that experience? You've been out of the country, and you come back, and it's like, this is different now. Everything's different. I can't see things the same way I used to see them. I have greater perception and insight. And right now, I don't even know how to fit back in to where I was before. Anyone ever felt that way? We feel that way because we've experienced a new culture. We've experienced a new people. We've experienced a different way of thinking. But brothers and sisters, how much more when you have experienced the touch of the living God. You are not the same. You're not the same anymore. So I want to look for a moment about what does it mean? What does it look like to be devoted to Jesus? The marks of radical devotion. So we see with Mary that she's a part of these 12 disciples, the 12 disciples and also this group of women. But first of all, being devoted to Jesus looks like following Jesus wherever he goes. You are people who are playing follow the leader, and the leader is Jesus Christ. So we are asked 
to do that in our lives, to be those who actually follow after the ways of Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, this was very strange. In the first century, it was, it was normal for a rabbi to have a group of men that went with him from place to place. They were his, I think in the first century in the Greek, they called it his posse. I think that's the word. I might be wrong about that word. But they had a posse. They had their group of guys. They had those, their disciples who went with them. But it was extremely strange to have a group of women as well. That could be considered scandalous. What are they doing in that little Jesus group over there? What's going on with that? It could raise a whole lot of questions. Let me just say to you today, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to get to a point where you care less about what everybody else thinks about you and you care more about what God thinks about you because you're going to do some things that don't make sense to everyone else. Mary says, I'm following Jesus. He is my leader. Secondly, being devoted to Jesus always means sacrificial giving. So you see in verse 3 of the passage here that Mary and these other women, they are the main supporters, it looks like, of Jesus' ministry. They are giving of their wealth. They're giving money, moolah, cheddar, cheese. Y'all know. They're giving what they have in terms of material possession in order to fund the ministry of Jesus. Devotion always means sacrificial giving. But brothers and sisters, we cannot just talk about money when we talk about that, right? When we look at what it means to follow Jesus, radical devotion to him, and to give, it means our time, it means our talents and giftings, and it means our treasure. It means all of those things. Following Jesus with radical devotion means my life is given to him. Every part of my life. There's, there's no area that's blocked off from Jesus. She, like these others, is giving all of her life. And, and that's one of the things that we're, we're trying to see here at New Life. We want to see even more among the whole body of Christ. You see, this giving is not reluctant giving. Oh, man, I have to give some money to the church. Oh, man, now they're asking for volunteers. What must I do to be saved? How can I not, how can I get out of volunteering? They're asking for this or that or the other thing. But this giving is not reluctant giving. This giving is not legalistic giving. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and this and this, and that'll be my hookup with God. It's not legalistic. It's not reluctant. It is a blessing to say, I get to give to the living God. I get to be a part of what God is doing. I'm excited about being involved in the work of the Lord. That is the blessing. We get to give. And the last thing I want you to see here under radical devotion, we could look at Mary's life and say, her devotion is extraordinary. Mary does all of these things and she 
is mentioned 14 times in the gospel accounts. Most of that is around his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. She is there with him in the very hardest and most difficult times. Her devotion is extraordinary. But brothers and sisters, I want you to see that extraordinary devotion is actually normal when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. How can extraordinary be normal? Well, if you're in God and God is in you, all of a sudden your life is extraordinary. Amen? Your life is different. Your life is marked. You have been touched by the God of the universe. His Holy Spirit poured out on his church. And I wish it was always true. When God touches a life, there is this sense and this life of radical devotion to him. But y'all... We all know that's not always true, is it? There's a story in the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel of 10 lepers that are crying out to be healed. Many of you know that story. And Jesus is passing by and they are crying out to the master, to Jesus, to heal them. The Bible tells us that Jesus tells them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so they go to the priest, and when they get there, they are completely healed of their leprosy. But what happens then? One of them goes back to Jesus. Nine of them don't go back and even say, thank you, Lord. Nine of them don't go back at all. And the one who goes back, the scripture makes it real clear in Luke 10, The one that goes back is a Samaritan. In other words, this man, before he was unclean as a leper, he was already outcast because he was a Samaritan. He was outcast from the people of God to start with. But he goes back. He kneels before the Lord. He worships him and he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was a leper, but now I'm healed. So so here's my question to us today what do you do with your deliverance because i believe god has touched many people in this room and if he hasn't touched you yet i'm praying that today will be your day that god will touch you even now but what do you do with your deliverance what do you do is your life marked by gratefulness to God for his amazing love towards you. You see, if you are going to be an agent of change for Jesus Christ in this world, your life will be marked by gratefulness and life-altering devotion to Jesus. It just ain't going to be the same anymore, y'all. Amen? Amen. God's calling us all to that greater devotion. I want to look at the second point here uh, in this in the scripture. We're going to turn to John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, I just have maybe one verse will be up there in a little bit. But John chapter 20 is where we find out uh, in, in John's gospel. It is the resurrection chapter where Jesus is raised from the grave. And at the very beginning of that chapter, the first two verses Mary goes out to the grave, we learn, 
from the other Gospels. There's probably some other women with her. But she goes and the body's not there. The tomb is open and the body's not there. And she runs back to the disciples who are gathered and she lets them know. And then John and Peter run. You know the story. And they find that the Lord is not there. Then it picks up again this story with with Mary in verse 11. And in verse 11, we see Mary there outside of the tomb, and she is crying. She's weeping. And then at, at one point, she sees two angels there in white, and they ask her, uh, what is she doing, and why is she crying? And she just begs with them and pleads with them, please tell me what you've done if you know where my Lord's body is. Let me know where he is. And, and you know the story. She turns around again and she sees what she believes is a gardener, but that is actually Jesus. And she says, please tell me where my Lord is. And Jesus says to Mary, one word, Mary. And she recognizes the voice of Jesus. And she cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then she begins to hug his feet. Let me, let me ask you this question, first of all. Next one up here. Where do you go when your spirit is crushed? You see, Mary had gone to the tomb. The body of Jesus wasn't there. She, like everyone else, wasn't getting this whole resurrected on the third day thing. She wasn't ahead of the curve on that. She was distraught. She was out of her mind. She was crushed in spirit. She was struggling with this reality that where is he? He's not there. Somebody took him away. But what does she do? She goes back to the place closest to where Jesus is. My question to us today is what do you do and where do you go when your spirit is crushed? and you're struggling, and you're hurting, and you don't know what to do, where do we go? And I think many of us could say at various times, I've gone to a whole lot of places that aren't the right places. Amen? Some of those could be the kinds of vices and sins that, you know, can make headlines. Others don't make any headlines. Listen, Eating a whole large pizza doesn't make a headline anywhere. But sometimes when we're crushed and distraught, we go back to habits like that. Eating, drinking, television, whatever it may be, something to get our mind off it or, or other things as well. But God is showing us through Mary when she's crushed, when she's disappointed, when she doesn't know where the body of the Lord is, she goes back to the closest place she can find near him. Brothers and sisters, that's where we need to be. When we're crushed, we go back to Jesus. Look at verse 17 here. Jesus said when she finds out this is Jesus, the Lord is here and he's alive, he's risen. Jesus says to her, don't hold on to me. For I've not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary, when she understands this is the Lord, she just wants to grab and hold on. And Jesus says, it's not time for that, Mary. 
It's not time for that. I've got a task for you to do. I've got something for you to do. I want you to see this. Mary chooses the place of mission over the place of comfort. Jesus says, don't hold on to me now. It's not time for that. I've got something for you to do. I've got a mission for you. And she obeys the Lord. It's not about her comfort at that time. It's about the mission of God. And Mary goes as the first eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. She goes to those whom we will call the apostles. And in a sense, what she becomes is the apostle to the apostles. Amen? Apostle means sent one, one who's sent with a message. She is sent with a message from the voice of Jesus himself, and she goes to the disciples and lets them know he is risen, he is alive. The greatest message that's ever been shared with anyone in this world is the message that was given to this woman who was crushed in spirit, but who went where she needed to be. Brothers and sisters, there's a place where we need to go and where we need to be when we are crushed. We draw near to him and he will give us the words that we need. Now let me turn you to an, an example that, that isn't nearly as good as Mary in the scripture. If you go to the next slide, I want to look at uh, this uh, king of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 13. His name is Jehoash. And Jehoash was, we get from the scripture, a wicked king of Israel. Y'all, there were a whole lot of them. And, and the Bible says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't turn back from the sins of his fathers. And he just followed the sins of his fathers and others and did not turn back to the Lord. But something's happening uh, during his reign over Israel, and he gets word that the great prophet, the double anointed man of God, Elisha, the one who got the double anointing that came from Elijah, is dying. And all of the sudden, Jehoash says, I want to be close to the prophet. Now, I don't know how much he wanted to be close to the prophet before doing all his dirt. Amen? He probably stayed away from the prophet, but the prophet's about to die and I'm going to draw near to Elisha as he dies because I'm looking for some kind of blessing from the prophet. And so that's what he does and and the prophet receives him and he even gives him a word. He says to Jehoash, "Here I've got some a bow and some arrows. I want you to take my bow and take one of these arrows and my window is facing east." And the enemies of Israel are out there. They've been coming against Israel, the Arameans. And so Elijah says to Jehoash, I want you to take one of those arrows and point it and let it go out towards the east. So Jehoash does that. And then the prophets, the prophets are weird. They always have people doing all kind of crazy stuff, y'all. He says, now I want you to take the arrows and I want you to pound them on the ground. And Jehoash King Jehoash says, okay, I'll do that. And he pounds the arrows on the ground, the Bible says, three times, and stops. The prophet gets angry. Like, why? He did what the prophet told him to do. 
But the prophet gets angry. He says, you should have pounded those arrows five or six times. And it's not in the text, but it's implied. And you should have pounded them like you mean it. Not, not this. But I want you to pound those things. I want you to say, yes, we want victory for the Lord. And what the prophet then says to Jehoash is this. Because you just pounded them three times, you're going to have a little victory. We'll give you three little victories. But the Arameans are still going to be around. They're going to be a snare to you. They're going to continue to fight you. Because you didn't do this with a whole heart, you're going to be ensnared by this enemy, and Israel's going to continue to be ensnared by the enemy. You see, here's the issue with Jehoash. You can put it up here. Jehoash is an example of passionless religion that's looking for a hookup from God. No real passion for God. No desire for the glory of God. But okay, tell me exactly what I need to do. Give me my directions. I'll paint by the numbers. I'll do exactly what you said. Tap the arrows down. I'll do that. Paint by the numbers obedience and expecting a blessing from God. Brothers and sisters, it don't work that way. I know my English is bad today, y'all. But it doesn't work that way. You see, Mary had this remarkable passion for the Lord. And those who have been touched by God know what it is to have a passion for the one who has set them free. But Jehoash, he's not into all that. It doesn't take all that. Just tell me exactly what I need to do and I'll do it. That way, precisely, without passion, and then you got to hook me up real good, God. It doesn't work that way. God's not looking for passionless, paint-by-numbers obedience. He's looking for people who are crying out, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's looking for people who are crying out like the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Put out anything in me that offends you and lead me in the way everlasting. God is looking for those who passionately want to bless his name. You can put up this next slide real quick. There's no person that can ever manipulate God. Somebody asked me today, Pastor Larry, do you believe in prayer? I'm like, dude, if I don't believe in prayer, <laughs> then my life is a waste, and our time here is a waste. Yes, I believe in prayer, but no one can manipulate God. We're not trying to manipulate God by our prayer, but God's heart is always moved. When a person lives passionately with a deep longing to see God's glory revealed. It's not about manipulating God. It's about getting your heart in line with God's heart and seeing the move of God in your life and through your life. Amen? Amen. I'm afraid that too many times in, in the church at large, we've got a lot of Jehoashes and not 
nearly enough Mary Magdalene's. Not nearly enough passionate practitioners of God's word. So we live in a time where it's so easy for us to live as comfortable Christians, but we're missing the mission of God. I'm about to turn 58, y'all. Some of you are like, yeah, young boy, tell me something I don't know. Some of you are like, man, he's older than I thought he was. I don't know how many years I have left, and neither does anyone else in this room. You can be 12, or you can be 95. You don't know how much time you've got left. But I know this, brothers and sisters, and I hope you know this too. What time I have, God uses it. God, use my life for your glory, for your kingdom, for your way to do what you want to do in this world passionately. As I'm getting ready to close, I'm going to talk about the Old Testament prophet Joel. He writes his prophecy at a time when there was an incredible plague in the land of Judah and about the land was wiped out by a locust plague. And you think that's that's kind of weird, but again, they're an agrarian society growing their crops. That's how they're going to live. And the crops are wiped out almost completely by this plague of locusts. And the plague comes. It just didn't come for no reason. God sent the plague, the Bible tells us, because of the half-hearted obedience of the people of God over a long time. They valued their comfort more than they valued obeying God's word. There's another word that the Bible uses sometimes for half-hearted obedience. That word is disobedience. Amen? But in Joel chapter 2, God instructs the people this way. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, you need to do something on the inside, not just something on the outside to impress others. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. God gives them good news. If you turn to me, I've got something good for you. But I hope that you know, I hope that you feel, I hope that you are aware that we as well are in a time of calamity. Not just 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago, whenever the prophet Joel was, but right now we're in a time of calamity not because of a locust plague. We're in a time of calamity not even because of natural disasters, not even because of political upheaval and mess. We are in a time of calamity because millions and millions of people are turning away from the Lord. They're leaving his church. What I'm looking at right now that's happening among us is an exodus of people away from the Lord, not the exodus that goes to the promised land. The largest group, religious group in America, the fastest growing one, is one that demographers call the nuns. That's not N-U-N, but it's N-O-N-E-S. And that is representative of those who 
uh, when, when they are asked, will say, we have absolutely no religious affiliation whatsoever. A study was done last year, and they found that the number of people now in our country who answer the question about their religious affiliation as having none, no, none whatsoever, is now equal to the number of people who would say that we're in a Protestant, Bible-believing, uh, Jesus-serving church for the first time, 23%, and that number is skyrocketing fast. And especially among our younger generations. But here's the thing. I think sometimes we can put a bad name on our younger generations for that, but I think that we're wrong in that. I think that a lot of people are leaving the church because they see it as irrelevant or even worse, complicit with evil. And too often they're right. When the church desires, you can go to the next slide, when the church desires to tap into the power structures of this world more than into the power of the living God, our younger generations see it, they want nothing to do with it, and they are right. The church, the people of God, are those who are given to press into God and ask Him for His power, not to compromise every way we can so that we can have a little bit of power in this present world. Younger people are seeing that. They're leaving. They're saying, this is what Christianity is about. I'm not about that. And they're right about it. Because that's not what Christianity is about. Following Jesus is about pressing your life close to his, going where he goes, doing the sorts and kinds of things that he does. If you have a Christianity that does not radically love every person that comes in your life, and I know we all are struggling with that, I know I do, but if that's not what your goal is, then your goal did not come from this book. It didn't come from this man named Jesus Christ who taught radical love for all. We need to be urgent in this task. We ask God with urgency to reach the generations. We ask God with dependency, not on schemes, not on strategies, not on ways of doing things, but dependence on Him. And then we ask as well with confidence. This is what our God wants to do. He wants to save. He wants to heal. He wants to deliver. He wants to make himself known in this world. We simply do like Mary did, and we say, I'm on it, God. Let me run for you. Let me close with this. We don't have a definitive word in the Scripture, but I cannot imagine that Mary Magdalene was not there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, I'm almost positive she was in that number, that 120 people in the upper room, men and women who are there. And God, as he pours out his spirit, then he pours out his spirit on Peter, and Peter gives the words that God had given to Joel 
all those years ago. And he says these words. Go to the next slide. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Verse 21 says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus poured his spirit out on the church 2,000 years ago. Brothers and sisters, even if you can point back in your life and say, he touched me, he touched me. And I'm no longer the same. You might need another touch today. You'll need another one next week. It's not one touch from God. And that's all we need. But brothers and sisters, we put ourselves in that place of saying, Lord, I need to be touched by you so that my life will make a difference for you in this world. In him, we live. In Him we move. In Him we have our being. In Christ alone. In a moment we're going to have communion as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, we believe that you want to do a great work in the midst of this church, here on the corner of D Street and Roosevelt Boulevard. But Lord, it's not going to happen in the bricks. It's not going to happen in the drywall or the carpet or the lights. It's going to happen in the lives of people. So Lord, we pray that you will do a deep work. That you will touch your people, Lord God, and you will make us those who are radically devoted to you, O oh God. You will make us those who are courageous in our witness, not afraid of what might be said about us, but Lord, we are those who live to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. God, do your work in us, through us, and among us, the praise and to the glory of your great and mighty name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.